Hi there, this is Susan Schultz, and I'm here to talk today about early detection of different types of dementia. And I'd like to show my disclosure statement that I do not have any financial interests or relationships with any of the companies supporting this event. So what I'll cover today is really the whole concept of dementia and what it really means both to the provider and to the patient. Now, dementia is an interesting term with some pluses and minuses in the sense that most of us recognize it's some change in mental function with age. On the other hand, it's often either not recognized or misinterpreted because the term dementia actually can mean a great many things. For most uh, the general public, the understanding is that there's a progressive change in memory or other cognitive functions, although as we'll talk about over time with this presentation, whether it's memory that changes or other cognitive or mental functions depends a lot on really what the source of dementia might be. So dementia is a term a little bit like malaise where we know there's something wrong, but the actual source and nature of the problem might vary depending on the person. The other important aspect that we'll cover today is that there's really more interest over time in recognizing a continuum of cognitive change or sort of a pre-dementia type scenario that helps us understand the course of brain aging and neurodegenerative changes and how we can detect those over time in a way that helps us with early interventions and ideally prevention. So when we think about the continuum of cognitive changes, the term mild cognitive impairment has been used more and more over time. And I'll describe that just a little bit, but also focus on a broader concept of neurocognitive disorders of a mild degree. So the original term that I've mentioned before during these lectures of mild cognitive impairment was really grounded in the idea of memory or amnestic changes as a way to identify individuals who may be at risk for progressing to an Alzheimer's type condition, although MCI actually could be non-amnestic in nature. The original definition was intended to identify pre-Alzheimer's or risk for Alzheimer's condition. And the idea was that there would be a memory complaint preferably something that's recognized by others, not just a self-reported complaint, as well as some changes in memory, but in the context of a person who's still functioning completely without impairment in their daily life. So these are individuals who are conducting all normal activities of daily living and therefore do not meet criteria for an actual dementia but there's something happening that suggests that they're in a risk category for progression to a more substantial problem. Mild cognitive impairment, then, is a condition that's considered a risk state for the progression to Alzheimer's dementia. And what's interesting about mild cognitive impairment is that among individuals who seek out an evaluation, and by that I mean present to their primary care doctor or another clinical setting with a complaint about memory, 
and they are in fact determined to have a mild impairment in memory but overall normal function, about 5 to 15 percent of that group each year does progress to a diagnosis of an Alzheimer's dementia. And over five years, up to 80% of these individuals are likely to convert to an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Now, if you look at the general population, which would include people who are not um, presenting to a clinic with complaints, about 40, up to 40% of those actually do not develop dementia over long-term follow-up. So there does seem to be an increase in the risk state among individuals who self-perceive greater concern such that they seek out a memory assessment. So in many ways, mild cognitive impairment, or MCI, could be considered an at-risk group, much in the same way we might consider a prediabetes group may be at risk for progression to diabetes mellitus, but they, not, they do not necessarily all progress to that condition. Now there's a slightly newer term that has replaced mild cognitive impairment in some settings where we're trying to increase the likelihood of detection of mild symptoms that may or may not be necessarily just memory related. And so there are a number of different aging related brain changes that are not necessarily Alzheimer's specific. So the DSM-5 nosology for mental disorders used a new language in a way that tries to sort of circumvent the use of the term dementia and broadening the concept to a neurocognitive change that may be mild in nature or it may be a major neurocognitive disorder which would be essentially the same meaning as the term dementia. So the idea is to help clinicians think about early changes that may be related to Alzheimer's disease or other pathology. So when we think of the main sources of other pathology that could cause ultimately a dementia syndrome or a major neurocognitive disorder, the most frequent that we see are typically related to Alzheimer's disease or cerebrovascular changes or stroke. And I'll also talk today about frontotemporal dementia or frontotemporal lobar degeneration as well as Parkinson's disease briefly and diffuse Lewy body disease which can all present in mild states that may be a point of early detection for a risk for a future dementia. So again, if we look at the term mild neurocognitive disorder, it follows the same basic structure that we use for MCI or mild cognitive impairment. So the idea of a mild neurocognitive disorder is that there's also a modest decline from a previous level of performance where an individual and also ideally an informant recognize that there's been some change from a previous state of cognitive function and that a modest impairment ideally is documented by an objective clinical assessment like a Montreal cognitive assessment or, or further neuropsychological testing. And again, mild neurocognitive disorders are defined that these changes are objectively present, but they are not of such magnitude that the individual has lost independence in daily living.
However, often the clinical presentation is that patients report much greater effort, much more compensatory strategies, or some changes in social behaviors to accommodate so that they can maintain independence. Now, if we take the old MCI, which would be now mild neurocognitive disorder due to possible Alzheimer's disease, that would be defined by a decline in memory skills. An important clinical feature that's unique to or often characterized by an Alzheimer's disease would be a progressive, gradual decline in cognitive function, typically memory, with no extended plateaus. So in the context of a mild NCD due to possible Alzheimer's disease, there's a steady progressive change specifically in memory function that I'll talk about in a moment typically in the absence of other likely sources of change, which might be a head trauma, stroke, known Parkinson's disease, or a severe medical illness, or a depressive illness that might be impairing cognition or memory. Now, when we look more specifically at the types of memory that often occur with um, Alzheimer's-type changes, Short-term memory would be the typical characteristic memory change in this condition. And when we say short-term memory, it's typically items that one has had to remember within the last few moments, within the last 30 minutes, or within the last day or so. So short-term memory are typically things that we've recently put into memory that we're trying to, again, access or recall. This might be things like remembering what one had for breakfast or where you just put your glasses. Many things that often, when we're distracted, we also are inattentive and forget. But when there's a progressive, consistent change in short-term memory, there might be a concern for mild impairment due to Alzheimer's-type changes. Now, by contrast to short-term memory, overlearned skills, such as the vocabulary that a person gains over a lifetime, or an overlearned behavior, such as driving, is an overlearned skill where it may be a complex skill that does require knowing a sequence of actions, but because it's overlearned, it's been sort of crystallized in some sense in a person's memory. This can be deceiving if an older adult has an extensive vocabulary and might be able to describe very complex details about, say, their hometown or other, other pieces of information that they have learned repeatedly over time. And that might be in stark contrast to not knowing what time it is, what day it is, what they had for breakfast. And so the difference between longer-term overlearned memories and short-term memory recall can be a very big difference in a person who, in fact, does have Alzheimer's changes. Now, another type of cognitive function that may be present early on in mild changes due to Alzheimer's disease is something called executive function. And those are tasks that require multiple types of brain function, including paying good attention, being able to hold something in one's memory long enough to use it, and putting these skills together to do complex decisions and 
organizing complex activities or being able to interpret a sequence of information where you may have to keep one thing in mind while deciding on the next thing. That type of sort of online processing of information in order to make decisions is termed executive function. That is also a skill that may become impaired in a person who's having mild changes due to Alzheimer's type pathology. So these individuals may have a lot of trouble making decisions or organizing a complex social function or doing complex financial planning, things that require multiple sources of information to be considered at one time. Now, in contrast to what we were just talking about with Alzheimer's type changes, it's important to think about what early types of changes may be present in a person who's actually having cognitive changes or a mild neurocognitive disorder in the context of vascular disease. So if we think about how that might present differently from a condition that's purely Alzheimer's driven, we have to think about how these different conditions progress. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a very specific pathology that affects very specific parts of the sort of mesial temporal cortex or the entorhinal cortex. That specific region that's affected in Alzheimer's disease is very specific to memory function. And so very specific memory impairments can be found in the context of Alzheimer's related changes. But when we consider how vascular disease progresses, it's a quite different type of impact on the brain. So brain changes in the context of vascular disease are essentially related to atherosclerotic changes in the blood vessels, both large and small. So when we think of a stroke type condition, that's a little bit more clear to identify in the sense that a large blood vessel to the brain can become thrombosed or can become unable to transport um, in the same way that it used to be able to allow cerebral blood flow. So if there's a large vessel stroke, a person may have an acute change in either hemiparesis or an acute change in motor or brain function or a temporary change, which would be a transient ischemic attack. And so these types of events happen when large blood vessels in the brain are not functioning properly. And we tend to be more aware of those. If a person had an acute stroke, we know that they have a, a time of sort of brain, um, brain inflammation and, and longer-term repair. That may result in a very dramatic drop in ability to exert cognitive or functional uh, behaviors at that time. Now, small vessel atherosclerotic disease is quite different in the sense that these may be very small vessels such that when they become ischemic, um, it's not nearly as clinically evident as a large vessel stroke in the sense that very small regions of the brain may become impaired, but it's not enough to really detect an acute change in a clinical state of an individual patient. Often these individuals might have sort of interrupted changes in function that are very subtle over time and may be detected at some point if an MRI scan of the brain is, is ordered. Oftentimes the reading is indicated in subcortical ischemic changes.
This may also be reported as diffuse small vessel disease or white matter small vessel disease. There's a number of different terms that are used in clinical radiology essentially to convey that there are small deep blood vessels in the brain that have shown evidence that they've become sclerotic. For an individual patient, because these tend to be in the deep white matter, they don't affect necessarily large cortical regions, so you don't see a dramatic change in a person's ability to think or move. But these may accumulate over time, and in fact, in all aging individuals, there can be small areas where small vessels have become dysfunctional that may not ever completely have any, any type of effect on, on function over time. They may be simple age-related changes. However, in vulnerable individuals, they may have sufficient magnitude even to constitute a dementia or a major neurocognitive disorder. So these can be very tricky to pick up on, and oftentimes in clinical radiology they may be read as normal age-related changes, but if as a clinician we're observing a change in a person's cognitive function and we're seeing this on an MRI scan, it's worth thinking about a vascular contribution to that person's changes over time, even if the overall reading on the MRI scan says there's nothing acute here and it's relatively simply age-related. So when we think about that, that essentially small vessel or large vessel changes are affecting a person's ability to think, given that much of the time these are small vessels in the deep white matter, then it tends to have an effect that there are patchy interruptions in the connectivity, if you will, of the brain. So that essentially the, the speed with which information can be processed, or if we think of it as information that has to route through white matter myelin tracts to connect up the gray matter parts of the brain, we can think about it in a sense that sort of deep white matter is interrupting the progress of thinking so that the speed of being able to pick up information or or exert complex attention can be slowed down so that there's difficulty in, in essentially rapid processing online of information which might be represented in a patient complaint such as I just can't think quickly or I get overwhelmed with multiple competing sources of information or I can't multitask like I used to, I can't make decisions quickly, which can present as executive function problems in the same way that I described with Alzheimer's changes except that it's a different source of the problem. In the Alzheimer's type condition, the person can't hold things in memory as well. In the, in the context of vascular changes, they may be able to hold things in memory, but they can't get them into memory fast enough to keep up with online processing of information. And in fact, the memory impairment in individuals with vascular changes may or may, may not be necessarily a major impairment. It's more the speed of information processing that slows down the ability to think quickly and respond to mental challenges. So when we boil down what cognitive changes are expected in vascular disease, we define them as essentially attention capabilities and speed of processing capabilities so that tasks may feel more difficult to do 
But in fact, given enough time, the individual is able to actually complete cognitive tasks. They just take a lot longer and require more effort because we might conceptualize this as sort of patchy interruptions in their ability to think and cognitively process. So they may be more likely to double check their work and feel insecure about their cognitive skills and they might have more trouble with multiple competing tasks. And this can make it very difficult to organize complex activities and make decisions. So the nature of early changes of vascular disease might have some similarities to Alzheimer's disease and also some differences. And we also might see a more complex problem with vascular disease when we think about how vascular interruptions can happen in many different parts of the brain in small ways. And they may, in fact, interrupt some of the cognitive links where we interpret visual information. And so visual spatial information processing can be more prominent in a person that's got vascular-related cognitive difficulties. And patients may describe that in terms of just being having difficulty visually interpreting where they need to get around in a new environment or navigating time and space. For example, navigating um, driving skills or coming up to a stoplight and having trouble interpreting how fast they need to go or how, how quickly they should slow down. Um, those types of skills may be more challenging in a person with small vessel disease or cerebrovascular disease because some of that connectivity is interrupted. And this may be seen in cognitive testing where if they're just searching for items on a written page or searching for an item in one's surroundings, they have trouble with visually processing information um, as, they, as they sense it. So that may be unique to individuals with vascular-related problems. Other features of vascular-related change include more, a little bit more of a stepwise progression, although this may be very difficult to necessarily detect a stepwise nature of, of the progression. It may seem fairly linear, but in general, vascular-related changes are considered to be more stepwise in nature. And they may be somewhat more later onset relative to many individuals with Alzheimer's changes. And when we think about how vascular disease is essentially a cumulative phenomena that combines age-related changes and vascular risk factors like diabetes, smoking, you know, heart disease, hypertension, um, that all of these things tend to have a cumulative effect over time. So the more comorbidity burden that a person develops over time, the longer they have diabetes or other vascular risk factors, the more that comorbidity builds up, the more likely they are to display cognitive features of vascular change. At the same time, these individuals often have to receive treatment for a number of things, statins, antihypertensives, they might need Lasix or Warfarin, and a, a variety of other conditions to control the vascular disease, which may in and of themselves impair cognition to some extent. And their presence can also be an indicator that a person may be at risk for vascular-related cognitive change.
So when we see individuals who are presenting later in the course of their life, say they're 80s, 85, 90 years old, and they have a number of vascular-related comorbidities, and now they're starting to show memory changes, chances are that it's accumulation of vascular-related brain changes as opposed to a new onset of Alzheimer's disease. Although these two things may be exquisitely difficult to tease apart, and we know in many ways their pathology can interact, which is why we say over time the likelihood of an Alzheimer's diagnosis does go up in later life, but at the same time the likelihood of a vascular contribution goes up as well. Now, when it's a pure Alzheimer's pathology, many of these individuals have a very young onset. So there can also be some differential likelihood of impact when you look at young onset memory changes versus changes in cognition that tend to accumulate with later life. So when you're looking at the oldest old, there's a very good chance you're looking at at least some effect of the impact of vascular changes. Now, because these two things are quite difficult to separate, the Hachinsky scale is often used as a way to try to quantify the vascular contribution that may be happening when there's a cognitive change that may still have an Alzheimer's component, as we know that two things can most certainly happen at the same time, and our job is try to try our best to separate the different features related to different pathologies. So the Hachinsky scale is meant to understand how we might see clinical changes that reflect early, the early impact of a vascular progression, whether it's large vessel or progressive small vessel disease. So this is a scale that's meant to try to help us understand the magnitude that vessels are having an impact. And so we can understand the abrupt onset of a cognitive change would be something that we would, we would clearly expect with a new stroke. And the stepwise nature is something I also mentioned, that there can be a more likelihood of, of abrupt changes in cognitive function followed by plateaus for months or years before another seeming acute change happens. A fluctuation in course is also more common with vascular-related changes as opposed to Alzheimer's that has a more steadily progressive course. Now fluctuations can be related to sort of the stepwise nature. But fluctuations in ability to perform cognitively can also be related to the magnitude of polypharmacy that vascular disease patients receive, the likelihood that they may have nocturnal confusion can add to fluctuations in the day-night cycle of individual behaviors. And so these things are often related to sort of the, the uh, fluctuating nature of vascular disease in and of itself. Now, preservation of personality is interesting in the sense that we conceptualize stroke disease as having patchy interruptions in brain function, but generally speaking, um, most of the major circuitry is still either intact or, or trying to function, so one's individual personality tends to be more likely to be maintained in a vascular-related condition as opposed to, say, Alzheimer's or even frontotemporal where some of the regions involved affects the limbic system, which is very heavily involved. So the frontotemporal regions are very heavily involved in um, personality and social behaviors.
Now, interestingly, despite preservation of personality in vascular disease, depression is very common. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, that perhaps depression is related to the self-awareness of the deficits or the ability to self-perceive that cognition is slowing, which can lend itself to feeling more somatic or more, in a more colloquial term, more hypochondriacal, more likely to complain of sort of anxiety and physical symptoms. Emotional incontinence is, is a description for sort of a lability or laughing and crying more easily than previously is often seen with progressive vascular changes. So, for example, after a stroke, a person may be more likely to burst into tears or have more ups and downs emotionally than they previously had. Now, the more obvious um, risk factors would be hypertension, stroke, and known atherosclerosis elsewhere, as well as focal neurologic signs and symptoms, such as changes in sensory perception or motor function that are clearly attributable to a large cortical deficit from a stroke event. So each of these are valued to a different magnitude, and typically, depending on the scenario, if, if each of these is either present or absent and its relative value is added together, a score of seven or more typically is considered to represent a substantial vascular component. So if a person has three or four of these that are definitely present and they add up to more than seven, then there's very likely to be a vascular contribution to that person's um, clinical presentation. Although this can also be used as more of a continuum as well, just to help us understand over time um, how much contribution at a, a certain point in a person's life it could be attributed to vascular changes. Now, the idea that depression is, is commonly present in the context of vascular disease is sometimes termed the idea of vascular depression. And these individuals may, because of these features noted on the Hachinsky item, they may be more likely to have a preservation of the ability to self-assess their own deficits. And so they may feel uh, more acutely aware that they're not thinking as quickly or performing as well on multitasking. And this can lend itself to more anxiousness and more self-depreciation type behaviors. Now, in contrast, some of the other conditions, particularly frontotemporal, as well as Alzheimer's disease, there's much less insight into the impairment. So the Alzheimer's individual may not be able to self-assess in the way that a vascular-affected individual could. So an Alzheimer's person may have very poor insight, and they may disagree that they don't have any deficits or that their memory is fine, and they may be more likely to feel that they're being picked on because they don't perceive any problems in the case of Alzheimer's or often frontotemporal changes. And vascular is quite different that those individuals do feel the problem, they do sense a change, and this can lead to a greater likelihood of depressive symptoms. Now, we'll move on from vascular disease now to other types of cognitive changes that may be present in all dementias, but may typify some very specific subtypes more specifically. And so we'll talk now about language and social cognition.
And these are more reflected in frontotemporal dementia that I've been mentioning here um, in the context of Alzheimer's. Frontotemporal has similarities in the sense that it has very poor insight into one's own individual changes. And it may be a bit intuitive that if your brain, in fact, is having trouble functioning, you may lose insight or may not have the ability to self-assess your own loss or changes. Now, in the context of frontotemporal type changes, language and social cognition are the two major features that are quite different than what I just described with Alzheimer's, where there's more of a memory presentation or with vascular, where there's much more of a presentation of slowed information processing. When it's language that presents as the problem, it may appear quite different that the person is now using unusual words or they're not using the correct words, even though they may be paying good attention and they may not be you know, distracted or impaired in any other way, but their language production is not working properly so that communicating with language starts to become more and more impaired over time. This is often attributed to the temporal region of the brain and the temporal connections to other regions. Now, social cognition is typically connected to more the frontal lobe functions of the brain. And social cognition is the way that we interpret information in a way that helps us behave socially with social norms or, or following social norms. And this social cognition is used in when we make an appropriate decision about a behavior and when it becomes impaired we make inappropriate decisions. This may be things like dressing inappropriately for a social situation or impulsively beginning reckless behaviors. Gambling would be one example or using substances in an unusual way that does not um, typically occur in a person's um, pre-morbid behavior or being disinhibited, becoming suddenly more profane, or behaving in a way that's socially out of character for a person based on their previous adult function. So these are very sometimes unusual cognitive changes that don't follow the way we normally think of cognition, where we normally think of being able to calculate decisions or remember something or pay attention. These are different. Now, when we think about how mild neurocognitive disorders present when there is a frontotemporal dementia, we typically break it down into those two major categories, a change in social judgment. And oftentimes we forget that part of frontal, frontal behaviors include motivation. So a person may um, show primarily apathy in the context of frontotemporal dementia where typically they can initiate some type of activity or behavior and they lose all motivation and lose sort of the ability to initiate and they may in fact sit in one place much of the day. That's one feature that may present in individuals who have frontotemporal dementia where their ability to initiate movements and actions and thought is severely impaired over time. And those are usually identified with the frontal lobe function. Now, talking fluently and initiating speech and using words in a way that correctly conveys their meaning is typically temporal lobe, but it's different parts, it's language aspects of the temporal lobe as opposed to the more memory-related aspects that are affected in 
Alzheimer's dementia. So frontotemporal dementia patients may have impairments in either language or frontal behaviors or both, but they may not necessarily have a memory problem. So they may be able to remember quite well on basic tests of memory, short-term recall, and delayed recall function, but other skills such as frontal and temporal functions related to social judgment and speech are disrupted. Now, frontotemporal type symptoms are very intriguing in the sense that they tend to be younger onset than either Alzheimer's or vascular changes oftentimes. And individuals with frontotemporal related changes may even present as early as in their 50s or even younger. And the changes in social behavior and language in a person who may not seem necessarily old or frail may make them appear more psychiatrically impaired because now they're behaving in perhaps a bizarre way without any obvious impairment in memory. And these are individuals who may not have any real medical comorbidity, certainly not like you would see with a vascular uh, dementia individual who may have multiple sources of vascular risk, including diabetes and cholesterol problems. A person with frontotemporal dementia may have no other real medical or age-related problems, but past young adulthood, now in their 50s or so, they're starting to show unusual behaviors that are out of character for their previous personality function. Now, we tend to break it down into those two main categories. So oftentimes we refer to a behavioral variant of frontotemporal um, dementia or neurocognitive disorder that could present mildly and oftentimes does in frontotemporal changes that can be very confusing to families because it may seem primarily of a psychiatric nature and it, it may be less clear essentially what the nature of the problem might be. So these features of being disinhibited or having severe apathy or inertia and a seeming sort of loss of sympathy or empathy. So people may describe just a loss of um, their ability to display a normal, um, normal sense of humanness or human interactions with others. However, these features are typically perceived by family and close associates and may not be necessarily self-perceived by the individuals affected. Now, sometimes behaviors may play out as very unusual, hoarding behaviors or compulsive behaviors, such as, you know, collecting items in the home that are not intuitively necessary or perseveratively talking about the same topic over and over and over again um, that may not be necessarily meaningful in a given social context. And an interesting aspect of frontotemporal may include actually disinhibition from a dietary or an oral standpoint, which might include eating compulsively or eating unusual items like spoonfuls of plain honey or something unusual that wouldn't normally be a dietary behavior um, or taking food off another person's plate and being unable to stop eating. So these may be unusual behaviors out of context, but in fact, when we do specific testing of memory or visual spatial function, they may be perfectly intact, that the person can perfectly pick out items on a sheet of paper or scan for items correctly in their visual environment or perform perfectly on short-term memory tasks.
Now the language variant may co-occur, but we often break these, they may also occur in isolation. But the language impairment may present as a variety of different aspects of impaired language function that could be producing speech at all. And so a person may be progressively less verbal, or they may try to speak but have trouble identifying the correct words for a given purpose. Or if we present objects on a piece of paper, being able to name the picture of an object that they're seeing, or using the right grammar or word comprehension, can all be aspects of impairment that reflect the language variant of frontotemporal dementia. Now, in contrast, again, the, the ability to copy simple line drawings or interpret visually the environment, these things may be uh, very modest or not impaired relative to the language impairment. Now, we'll move on from frontotemporal symptoms, although before I move on, I might conclude that once frontotemporal progresses, to a major neurocognitive disorder or a dementia syndrome, oftentimes the progressive nature may diffuse into more widespread impairments that may appear much more Alzheimer's-like late in the course of illness. So it's really the early detection where some of these distinctions might, may be much more obvious. And once progression has become substantial, there's more similarity amongst them. Now moving on to Parkinson's disease, which is probably the next most common source of changes in both memory, cognition, and motor function over time. So Parkinson's disease, strictly speaking, is a motor disorder that is typically diagnosed and defined as a movement disorder that has very specific features that may include tremor, sort of a coarse resting tremor, a shuffling gait, a flatness or loss of facial expression, as well as overall motor rigidity and freezing of volitional motor behaviors. And so Parkinson's disease is typically identified and defined as a motor disorder or a disorder of movement. However, we know that as Parkinson's disease progresses over time, it may include progression of that information processing speed that I mentioned in the context of vascular disease. So it's interesting in the sense that Parkinson's disease presents initially as some of the deep brain changes, sort of the deep gray matter structures that are involved in motor behavior, as they become more impaired over time. The term subcortical slowing is a term often used for these deep structures. And the presentation includes slowed processing speed or a slowing of information use that is very commonly complained about in the context of vascular disease. And so memory, in fact, may be relatively intact much like in the context of vascular disease, but subcortical slowing is present. So both illnesses, both Parkinson's disease and vascular-related cognitive change, have some very similar, similar characteristics, that they involve a slowing of the ability to process information quickly 
And so whether it's vascular disease affecting the deep white matter or the Parkinson's disease progressing to the point of more widespread degenerative changes, they both tend to present with a slowing of mentation as well as slowed motor movements. And they both include a fair amount of the distress and depression because the self-perception of those impairments often remains intact. Now, much like the other neurodegenerative disorders, as Parkinson's disease progresses later into the course, as individuals approach late 70s, early 80s, there tends to be a more widespread cognitive change that does eventually affect individuals with Parkinson's disease. And this typically accompanies more widespread functional changes and more of a loss of independence over time. Now, Parkinson's disease is very interesting and difficult sometimes to distinguish in terms of the criteria for Lewy body disease because both conditions tend to have very similar pathology in the brain, but Lewy body is a much more complex and more early disabling condition. So both diseases, Parkinson's, has very early evidence of mo movement problems, although both diseases have them. But tremor and rigidity are the primary focus of treatment in Parkinson's disease, typically for years before cognitive concerns become apparent or cognitive testing shows significant abnormalities. Now, Lewy body disease is similar in the sense that movement disorder problems are very common as well. So the same types of problems with rigid, rigid motor behaviors and the shuffling and tremor can also be present. Lewy body also can have what we call hypophonia or, or a loss of intensity of vocal speech. And so the speech becomes very soft. And micrographia, where handwriting becomes very small. So we just think of an attenuation of motor activity that can make speech soft, writing small. And these things progress over time in both conditions, but may be a little bit more prominent early on in Lewy body. Most importantly, Lewy body has a very early presentation of problems in cognitive function that exceed what you would see in Parkinson's. Lewy body individuals are much more prone to impairments in their ability to sustain their alertness and attention, as well as their thinking skills and overall functional status. So Lewy body can be conceptualized as a much more accelerated and cognitively severely impaired form of a Parkinson's type picture. So when we think of Lewy body disease, generally speaking, it's a younger onset than either Alzheimer's or vascular. And many, actually, young onset Alzheimer's can be roughly the same as Lewy body, but Lewy body is certainly um, a more a younger onset, oftentimes than vascular disease. Although all individuals can have different ages. It's hard to make gross generalizations, but relative to vascular disease, Lewy body is a relatively younger onset individual. And these individuals present with some features of Parkinson's disease with rigidity, loss of expression, and slowed mentation. But their, their clinical features become very early on much more prominent 
with cognitive impairment, often with dramatic fluctuations in alertness and attention. So a person may seem, quote, out of it during parts of the day where they seem more confused with less alertness and less coherence to their interactions. But then other times of the day they may appear much more normal in terms of cognition. These individuals are also very prone to visual hallucinations, which could be related to their, their propensity to more of a delirium, but also can occur as very well-formed and very clear visual hallucinations that may have great details, such as a person standing in the room that is a specific person. So these visual hallucinations are typified in, in Lewy body type degenerative change that don't occur nearly as frequent in other types of degenerative changes. So often visual, clear visual hallucinations in the absence of a delirium is something that is, is characteristic of Lewy body disease. And the cognitive impairment is much more pronounced and earlier in its presentation relative to simple Parkinson's disease that does not have a Lewy body type progression. So there are additional features of Lewy body disease that can be suggestive or help confirm the diagnosis because the diagnosis is very difficult to make in Lewy body disease when you're struggling with, well, is there par are there Parkinson's features here or is this a delirium because of other um, comorbidity and fluctuations in mental status can be very difficult to tease apart from other sources in an older individual. But there are a couple features of Lewy body that are more unique to Lewy body, and that includes some sleep disturbances, some unusual behaviors during REM sleep that can include sleep movements during sleep, walking during sleep, talking during sleep, just unusual behaviors that occur um, when a person should be in restful sleep. Also, severe sensitivity to medications is typical of Lewy body disease, whether it's confusion from medicines or in the context of antipsychotic medicines, a high risk for more severe motor side effects with antipsychotic medicines such as rigidity or tremor. And confusion as well is, is something that Lewy body patients are very vulnerable to. So Lewy body is very complex to treat because of sensitivity to medications, including antipsychotic medications, that may seem indicated if there's hallucinations or other disturbances, but their use has to be very cautiously administered. And in fact, if the visual phenomena are not frightening, the response to an antipsychotic may be so poor and may be disabling that it's very important to carefully weigh medication decisions in Lewy body disease. Also, Cinemet or levodopa-type medications can be very helpful for individuals with Parkinson's disease. But Lewy body individuals may be less likely to benefit from levodopa therapy and they be, may be more likely to have confusion, delirium, and hallucinations from the presence of dopaminergic agents. So this adds substantially to the complexity of managing Lewy body disease. 
So to sum up with a few final key points, as we discuss the different types of dementia, it may be helpful to think about some of the different characteristics associated with those different conditions. One of them may be the age of onset when we consider vascular disease oftentimes because it's a cumulative problem, as we look at our older patients who may have done quite well into their 70s and perhaps early 80s, the contribution of vascular disease, which we can help quantify using the Hachinsky scale, may be more likely to be more prominent in older individuals. And by contrast, if you look at young individuals who may have minimal comorbidity, um, Alzheimer's disease when memory presents in the absence of other comorbidity, or if there's substantial cognitive changes and some minimal signs of Parkinsonism, Lewy body may present at a younger um, point in time than, say, vascular disease, although Lewy body and Parkinson's tend to have a, sort of a course of their own and they may not be necessarily younger. Frontotemporal, however, is by far one of the more of the youngest onset. So individuals may display frontotemporal symptoms much earlier than other types of dementia, followed in time most commonly by Alzheimer's type symptoms. So Alzheimer's and frontotemporal are conditions where you see the least medical comorbidity. So individuals with pure memory impairment or pure changes in social cognition or language function in the absence of any evidence of other comorbidity that might include Parkinson-type symptoms or vascular disease or other age-related chronic diseases such as pulmonary or cardiovascular disease. There's relatively less, which helps us understand that there's less factors contributing to the cognitive decline, and it's more driven by Alzheimer's type pathology or frontotemporal type pathology. Now, vascular disease patients in general tend to have a greater accumulation of multiple sources of vascular compromise. But as if all of these problems are not complex enough, it's also very clear that more than one type of dementia can occur in a single individual, probably the most common by far being the, the, pers the interface between Alzheimer's type changes and vascular disease. And when we look at the population, broadly speaking, among individuals, say, between age 75 and 85, there's a very good chance, if there's a problem with a dementia syndrome, that there's competing contributions from both Alzheimer's type changes as well as vascular-related pathology. So we always have to keep our minds open that when we see a variety of impairments in function, there could be multiple contributing factors. And I haven't even touched today upon other factors such as substance abuse, head trauma, and all of the other etiologies that can affect our brains over time. So those are topics for another day, and we hope to see you at another lecture. Thank you.